Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Good morning and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today... There are 83 new cases of COVID-19 in New Zealand, made up of 78 new confirmed cases and five probable cases. Our new normal, the daily toll of COVID-19 cases. How long will we have to live like this? And how will we know when the risk has passed? We talked to the data experts closely monitoring New Zealand's progress and the health minister joins us live. And then shutting down in small town New Zealand. So are you going to do this for the whole month? If I have to, I have to. If I I don't get cleared, um, yeah. Story shortly. The latest Ministry of Health statistics show that New Zealand has 83 new cases of COVID-19. So our total, our confirmed total, is now 451 with two people in intensive care. We've been warned those numbers will continue to increase in the coming days. Health Minister David Clark joins us live from Dunedin. Tēnākui, welcome to Q&A. Good morning, I want to begin with the lockdown. What is success? In three weeks' time, what is the criteria for lifting the lockdown and reducing our alert level? Well, uh, I mean, ultimately, it will depend on the clinical and uh, scientific advice that we are given. Uh, Every New Zealander has a part to play here. and We're all in this together. Mm -hmm. If we see that curve starting to bend, if we can see that the intervention uh, is making a difference and that we are starting to see the numbers come under control, uh, we'll take the advice that the experts bring to us. We've got an alert system with four levels in it. Yep. And so that gives us the ability to ramp up or ramp down uh, as we see the situation change. So what have the experts told you we need in terms of numbers? How many new confirmed cases do we need to have before we lower that alert level? Uh, look, we haven't got into specific numbers in that regard. It really depends on the rate of increase and whether we're seeing that curve bend whether we are seeing New Zealanders observing the social Mm. distance, whether we're seeing the behaviours we know uh, will change the nature of the outbreak, and also whether we're able to track the cases, whether the new cases uh, that we're getting are ones that have come in from overseas that we can clearly explain or through close contact, or whether we've got evidence of some wider uh, phenomenon going on. How much does it need to bend? Uh, Look, it needs to bend significantly from where we are right now. Mm. We are seeing uh, case numbers increase, as you highlighted uh, at the beginning of your report. And uh, that's what we, uh, I mean, that's the reason we're in this uh, situation where we're asking people to stay home and stay safe because we know we need to change that trajectory. Do New Zealanders need to prepare themselves for the likelihood that this lockdown could last for longer than four weeks? Well, I think ultimately it will de- it's in our hands. Uh, if people do take the actions that they, I mean, I've seen people who or heard reports of people playing touch rugby or going into businesses uh, that are non-essential. That cannot continue. We have zero tolerance for that kind of, Thing going on. If people do those kinds of things, we will need to stay in lockdown longer because uh, that behaviour affects all of us. So we're asking every New Zealander to play their part, to do all of the things that are required, the public distancing, uh, going to the supermarket, sending only one person to do that, uh, washing your hands frequently, but just staying home. If you're unwell, staying home completely, getting someone else to bring you your shopping or um, sending someone else in the household to get some shopping. If in doubt, don't go out. I look overseas to countries such as Spain, where, of course, the outbreak is much more serious than it is in New Zealand at the moment. In Spain, you can't go out for anything. Is that the sort of restriction you might consider if New Zealanders don't abide by the rules as they stand? Look, the, the, the scientific evidence, the medical evidence, is that if people abide by the rules we've got, we will see that curve start to bend. Uh, so we don't want to put unnecessary hardship on people, uh, but we ask people to observe Uh, the things that they've been asked to observe. Uh, In the interest of all New Zealanders, it's about staying home, staying safe, Mm. and ultimately that will save lives. And does the evidence and the data that you have suggest that the curve will bend sufficiently for us to lift the lockdown after four weeks? Well, the the modelling scenarios we've seen, and they're not predictions, but they're Mm. scenarios, uh, do indicate that with these kinds of behaviours, from what we know of infectious diseases, we should start to see that curve bend Uh, sometime after 10 days. Have we got enough protective equipment and COVID swabs to supply general practices, community-based COVID-19 assessment centres and hospitals? I'm assured that we do, yes. Um, We've just sent out uh, uh, 640,000 masks. Um, We've got another 4 million going out to health workers in the next month, 4 million going out to uh, other workforces uh, that are non-health related, um, and we've got production ramping up in that regard. Uh, we've got supplies of 
PPE of different kinds. The important thing will be making sure we continue to get it. Um, we've got these stocks in reserve for a reason for exactly this kind of situation. Uh, and we're working very hard. The whole of government's very focused on making sure we continue to get the stocks we need into the future. Why aren't community care workers getting facial masks? Um, the Ministry of Health has updated its guidance on uh, who should have uh, different types of PP in the last 24 hours. So I'd encourage people to go to the website to see uh, what's required. But of course, it depends on the kinds of care and the kinds of contact people are having. Um, and that is something that's being worked through closely with each of those organisations. Yeah, but that, back to my question then. These are, these are community care workers who care for 100,000 elderly and disabled New Zealanders. If you and I can't stand within two metres of one another, how can we expect these workers to go into people's homes and assist them with lifting and, and cooking and that sort of thing without facial masks? Well, I mean, my understanding is that if they are up close in certain situations, then it is appropriate, and in other situations, it's not. Now, that is that is being guided by clinical decision makers, um, those who understand the science. Um, and so, my my concern is, if people do have concerns about that, they should be talking uh, through WorkSafe um, and, and you know addressing those. Yeah, concerns. I mean, I'm looking at your, I'm looking at uh, at the guidelines that you have published within the last 24 hours right now. So uh, people who, for example, are immunosuppressed don't even get gloves if they're going to uh, assist people in a community care space. Well, look, these, these are the uh, advice, uh, bits of advice that we have been given. Um, those things are constantly being revised. We are looking at the best evidence on what works and uh, on how to keep people safe. Remember, these people are being kept in a bubble. So we are, uh, this is, again, the reason that all New Zealanders uh, need to observe but these the community care workers might, 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 sorry to interrupt, these community care workers might be assisting eight people per day. So that's a significant bubble. And, and, and again, if you and I aren't allowed to get within two metres of one another, but these, these people are going to eight different homes throughout a day, plus being in their own home, in their own bubble, surely that presents a significant risk. And we're not giving them masks or, in some cases, gloves. Well, I, I understand that they do have the gloves when they need them. Um, and this is, I can only go off the clinical evidence, the scientific mm. evidence. That's what served us very well by making sure we have the PPE stops where they're needed, when they're needed to keep people safe. We do have enough PPE. And the, the challenge, you will have heard some anecdotes I certainly have uh, over the last week. At times, it's not in the right places at the right time. That is what we're very focused on sorting out so that we don't have those cases where it's not where it should be. Are there plans for the redeployment of um, GPs, um, doctors and, and staff if general practices remain quiet in the coming weeks and the demand on acute services increase? Yes, we are looking at different ways of operating. Um, general practice is seeing a huge change in the way it operates and some of them are coming under financial pressure as a consequence too. Uh, that's something the government's very alert to. Uh, we want to make the most of those workforces and support them uh, to, to support us through this. Um, again, um, they're, they're critical in this, but uh, all New Zealanders um, doing the right thing, um, staying home, staying safe, mm. uh, will take the load off all of those health workforces. So GPs might be called in to help. What about medical students? Well, uh, we'll look at all workforces as appropriate along the way. Uh, we've had a lot of people who have trained in health areas who have been deployed in other fields of work, which are deemed now non-essential, are putting their hand up to come back and serve in the health field too, uh, as well as those retired folk. And we know there's potential to use tools like you and I are using right now, mm. uh, Jack, um, the Skype and other, other things to uh, make sure that they can keep a distance from patients if they're elderly or retired, um, but provide uh, valuable medical assistance. Are tents being sent to hospitals so they can establish outdoor triaging centres? Each DHB uh, is doing its own response. Um, we've got some community-based assessment centres um, set up around the country, about 40 of them, I'm mm. told now. Uh, we have uh, DHBs looking at where they can have additional capacity should they need it for overflow. Um, but the majority of uh, space we have uh, we need, we have already. It's about repurposing it. Um, for example, but, making sure that, that so ICU-like conditions can be set up. Yeah. Uh, that'll, D, DHBs will make those decisions in their own situation in order to uh, meet the needs of but, their own But population. what's the information not, you... They're not being, I, I don't understand that they're being centrally sent out. Um, the DHBs are each making their decisions as to how to best serve their communities. 
You mentioned the financial pressure on uh, GP practices. Is there anything the government can do to assist in that space outside of redirecting GPs into the acute response? Uh, yes, we're, we're certainly looking at financial uh, response to support them. We've put aside money, if you, you recall, in the, um, in the health package that was announced uh, alongside the, the early uh, financial package from the Minister of Finance. So there is finance there to support our primary care workforce and we're looking at how we can release that. Minister, are you able to give us any update on the Nelson patient who was in intensive care? Uh, I don't have patient details and for confidentiality reasons I wouldn't expect to, but um, you know, we, we need to be prepared that uh, we will get some sick people here. New Zealand is not immune. We will see some deaths. Um, but again, it's up to all of us to make sure we're doing the right thing uh, to ensure that we don't face the situation that they are facing in those hotspots overseas. Minister, why are you in Dunedin and not in Wellington? Um, basically to keep people safe. Um, in the same way that you're, uh, you're there and I'm not in the studio with you, um, as ministers, we've, uh, we've decided that the important thing is that we... Uh, uh, doing exactly what we expect of everybody else, making mm. sure that we are staying home, staying safe and uh, thereby saving lives. Why, why wouldn't you isolate in the capital though, so that if uh, some of your colleagues were to fall ill, you could respond and take over? Uh, ultimately, we're all doing this stuff by distance. So um, I have to say I've got a phone uh, taped to my ear all day, uh, pretty much uh, at the moment and, and working some long hours. But um, lots of people are in this response. That's not unusual. Uh, it's, a, it's good that we live in the internet age where we can communicate uh, via a, a range of medium and keep uh, the system mm. moving. Health Minister David Clark, good luck. Tēnā koe, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jack. I just want to let you know, for the duration of the lockdown, I'm not going to be doing any interviews in person in the studio. It will mean some subtle differences in the style of interviews that we conduct on Q&A. And although Skype isn't perfect, as you saw then, it's not half bad. And the upside is that you will get to have a bit of a nosy in some of our guests' homes. All right, coming up on Q&A, what does the data say about how long we'll have to be in lockdown and the impact of a global pandemic in small-town New Zealand? Police have um, feeling the effects of a sharp increase in family harm episodes right across the country and, and here in Masterton. Sorry, do you, you mean in the last how long? Uh, the last two or three days. Kia ora e te welcome back to Q&A. If you've already got ants in your pants after a few days in isolation, it may be some comfort to consider the morbid alternative. Researchers at, university, at Auckland University say that without intervention or preventative measures, as many as 80,000 New Zealanders could have died from COVID-19. But what impact has a full lockdown had on those projections? Auckland University's Professor Sean Hendy is with us this morning. Tēnā koe, Sean. I'm not on it, Jack. 83 cases confirmed yesterday. So that's two fewer than on Friday. Can we read anything into that? Uh, I wouldn't want to read too much into it. I mean, what, what we're seeing at the moment, and, and this was expected, is we're seeing a lot of cases that are still related to international travel. And, of course, the, those, the, those travel restrictions, they were tightened two weeks ago. Um, and so we're expecting to see, you know, those cases related to international travel start to drop, um, especially this week. So they'll start to fall out of those statistics um, and, and, and we do expect a, a, a drop or a, or a plateauing in numbers. Um, what we're really concerned about and you know, what we're watching mm. as modellers is what about those clusters of community transmission? Those are, the, those are the ones that have the potential for the exponential growth that we're seeing overseas. And what does the data tell you about the capacity for that exponential growth? How bad could things be? I mean, it, it could get it could get very bad. I mean, we we you know the the um, uh, the eighty thousand figure that was kind of the the worst case scenario mm. that, that we were looking at. You know, when we're not facing that now that we've taken these steps, um, but we still have to be um, uh, you know still a possibility that we could have tens of thousands of deaths. Uh, but given the steps that the government's taking, given the the lockdown that they're taking, you know that's that's reducing the. the uh, possibility of that happening all the time. How much is it reducing that possibility? One of the things it does when we go into lockdown mm. like this, I mean, basically the the way it works in our models is, you know, there's a number called R naught, and that's you know, if you get infected, on average, how many other people will you infect? And by going into lockdown, you know, us keeping to our bubbles, we're protecting ourselves 
um, uh, by not having contact with other people who might be infected. But also, if we do get infected, then we're reducing the number of people we might go on to infect. And that number, if we can, if we, you know, we want that number to get below one. So wow. on average, right, every person is infecting less than one other person. And if we get that, then what we will see, you know, we'll actually contain and be able to eliminate the disease in New Zealand. So that's the number we're looking for. Now, I, I'll make it clear so you don't have to. You are not an epidemiologist or, or a virologist no. here. You, you are looking at the data. But from the data yep. sets you have available to you and the current state of the New Zealand response, how many deaths are likely in New Zealand? It, it's still it's still really up in the air. I mean, one of the things that we've got, you know, it's a new disease. Mm. So, and, you know, we are working with, with people who are clinicians, who are epidemiologists, and they're working really hard to understand the international literature. You know, what is the information we're getting from overseas that tells us, that, you know, the characteristics of this disease? So we're kind of learning as we go about that. Um, and, and, and then also, you know, how are New Zealanders responding to the, to the lockdown? You know, are we actually staying at home? Mm. And it look, looks pretty good at, in Grey Lynn. <laughs> People seem to be um, uh, following the, the, the physical distancing uh, here where I live. Um, but, we'll, you know, we'll have to get a sense of how that's going in the country. So the scenarios are still really broad. I mean, it could just be a handful of deaths. You know, we've got several hundred cases now in New Zealand we know from what we've seen overseas that that means we'll you know there will likely be some deaths mm -hmm. as a result of that um, and so so if our if our tracking if our tracing um, and testing regimes are strong enough um, then actually that that will really restrict those numbers if if not um, then these lockdown measures will have to go on longer um, and and um, you know we're still facing a scenario where we might have um, thousands of deaths. Uh, so, you know, but we've got some control over mm. it, over that by how long these lockdowns last. Is the Ministry of Health doing enough testing to give you the data you need? Uh, we're, ju we're just getting that starting to come through now. Um, so, so that's that's really going to be our number one thing we're going to be working on this week is to is to start incorporating that into the modelling, and we should be able to say something about how effective our um, our, our uh, testing and now contact tracing is sometime this week. Just to be clear, though, is that is that a delay in the communication of the data points from the Ministry of Health to your team, or is it that the Ministry of Health isn't doing enough community well, testing yet? It, it's actually the disease itself, really, because the um, uh, there's a lag, right? There's a, there's an incubation period that's actually quite variable for different people, mm. and so actually we've sort of. You know, we've got to look at that data and, and everybody has to remember that the numbers that are being announced every day, right, some of those people were, were infected up to two weeks ago. Mm. Um, and so there's this lag effect that, that just means that from a statistical point of view, we have to wait um, for a certain amount of time before we can really understand what, what the disease is doing in New Zealand. I appreciate these are early days, but from the data you have at the moment, do you think we'll be coming out of lockdown in four weeks? Um, I... I I wouldn't want to make a call at this stage. I think it does really depend on how well we're, we're sticking to things. I mean, people should prepare themselves for a longer lockdown. I mean, it's certainly a possibility um, that we might have to have longer lockdowns. I think the other thing um, is that we're considering whether uh, we might be able to have maintain regional lockdowns. Um, so that, that's something that people should think about as well, the possibility that some parts of the country may come off level four earlier than other parts of the country. In particular, if we're able to, to contain and keep the disease out of certain towns, certain regions, then they may be able to lift their levels earlier. And this would be a response to the clusters that you referenced? That, that's right. So, so if, we, you know, if, we, if we can keep clusters uh, out, out of you know, parts of the South Island, for example, or, or parts of the North Island, um, then maybe we can mm. ease restrictions in those regions. I mean, you still would have to have um, controls on whether people can come in and out um, of those regions. So, so um, you, you know, there'll still be restrictions, uh, but it may be you can go, say, from level uh, four to level three a little bit earlier than other parts of the country. Is this our future until we get a vaccine? Is that what the modelling tells you at this stage? Yeah, look, we've, uh, even if we, you know, even if the, the, the next um, four weeks goes goes to plan, you know, and I think we've got a good plan in place, even if that goes to plan, you know, the reality is it's, it's got out of control overseas, you know, and that, that, wasn't, that wasn't within our ability to influence as a small country. 
mm. um, other countries have let it get out of control. And that really, that makes it quite dangerous for us, even if we can keep ourselves safe here and eliminate it here in the next four weeks. So people should anticipate, you know, international travel restrictions for quite some time until we have that vaccine, right, which would then protect us if we were to go traveling overseas or allow people to potentially come here if they've been vaccinated or potentially um, uh, antibody tests, right? So there are a number of antibody tests that could actually, you can, you know, the, the, the blood tests that can check whether you've been exposed to the disease and whether mm. you have immunity. Um, and so if those, kind of, if those kind of testing regimes become widely available, that might allow us to ease some of those international travel restrictions. But we have to do what we can to, to keep it out you know, once we've eliminated it within New Zealand. Professor Sean Hendy from Auckland University, it is always so good to speak. Thank you very much for your time. Good to talk to you too, Jim. We are four days into the shutdown and already many of us are finding the going tough. We're used to our freedom. And then there's the stress of worrying about jobs, businesses and of course our health. There has never been anything like this in our history. So reporter Fena Owen spent the last few days in Masterton to get a snapshot of how one of our smaller towns coped with closing down life as we know it. Yes, it's Masterton, population 26,000, hours before the Wednesday night lockdown and someone in the pack and save queue just scored a job delivering food. I just got my licence tonight to drive tomorrow morning. He's filmed on a telephoto lens. At the time of reporting, Wairarapa had five COVID-19 cases. One case, a 30-year-old man suspected to be community transmission, has now recovered. Over at Henley Park, a man is preparing to sleep in his car. Yeah, I'm isolated. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm a good um, 15 metres away from you guys. He says he visited Te Papa the day the Ruby Princess passengers were there and has been tested for COVID-19. So at the moment you don't have your results, you no. don't know whether you're positive or not? I have no idea. So are you going to do this for the whole month? If I have to, I have to. Yeah, if, I, if I don't get cleared, um, yeah. Cool, that's me. Thursday, day one of the lockdown. There seem to be a lot of cars on the road, on State Highway 2 across there and just everywhere. Maybe they are going to the supermarket. You mean all the cars going... What across? a joke! At the north end of town, a guy yells at us to film the traffic. People aren't taking the lockdown seriously, he says. Just a bloody joke. What is that? This film? is supposed to be a lockdown. Oh, you mean the cars on the How road here? How many people have gone past since we've been talking? Police presence has been lifted around the town. Local CIB and youth aid officers have been brought onto the front line. We need to stop the spread of this virus and the only way to do that is to stay put. This resident is also wondering how seriously people are taking the lockdown. Her son's in Spain where no one is on the streets, she says. So your son is in Spain. Are you concerned about that? He's already had coronavirus. So. He's had coronavirus. While campgrounds around the country are closed, this one in Masterton is open. And the reason why this one's open, the manager told me, is that there are people living in the campground who are working in essential services. But it's not open to other campers. They have to go to places like Henley Lake and stay there for a month. So I'm back at Henley Lake and this is where I met a guy last night who was self-isolating, waiting for his test results. He'd been at Te Papa with some of the uh, passengers of the Ruby Princess and he's gone. But there are a few other campers. I'm just going to keep my distance here. How are you? What are your plans now? Well, we are right now on hold with Air New Zealand because we have a flight out of the country on the 15th Yes. and we've been advised by the government to get out sooner so we're investigating at the weekend. Across the park a Kiwi woman in her 60s is living in her van and tells me she believes these are the end times. Nice to meet you Sally. All the best. Bye bye. Police have um feeling the effects of a sharp increase in family harm episodes right across the country and, and here in Masterton. Sorry, do you, you mean in the last how long? Uh, the last two or three days uh, since, since the beginning of the lockdown and police can't stress enough um, that no matter what's going on in your life and how difficult the situations are in the home environment to just be kind to another, look out 
for each other and uh, let's ride this out as a country. Day two of lockdown in Masterton and the reality of the long haul seems to be setting in. On the south side of town, JNL Mill, one of the region's biggest employers, is quiet. 240 staff will be depending on government wage subsidies. Workers at Masterton's food bank are preparing boxes for local families. And is someone delivering them or do they just come in? Uh, most and of them are being delivered by agencies. Yes, hi there. Over at an old family bakery, the manager talks to us from his bubble. And what we've done is we've got one production bubble, if you like, that's put their hand up to lock down with us and are essentially the living at work. They are accommodated off-site to sleep and uh, have a shower, etc. and they're transported to from the bakery. They get their meals um, here at the bakery and that's catered in by a professional team um, that we work with from time to time and all the sort of necessities are all provided. So we're trying to avoid breaking our isolation bubble and we also we've got a backup team currently in self-isolation at home so if we need to call on them, they'll be available later. Could I just take this opportunity to publicly thank our people um, and also their families because we're all going through this together and we all know how difficult it is. By late afternoon on Friday, at the AMP grounds, everyone was hunkered down. This is their home for the next four weeks. Fina Owen with that report. Isn't it sad about the family violence response? Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on our Facebook page or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. The Leader of the Opposition, Simon Bridges, is here after the break. And we take you to the new epicentre of the global pandemic. Not an under-resourced developing country. No, New York City, coronavirus in Trump's America. Kia ora, Simon. Jack here. Hey, g'day. Yeah, it was really good. And now I've not spoken of the connection. You're um, your words are ahead of your face, but that's OK. That connection sounds pretty pretty average to me too, but uh, hopefully we can understand you. What's wrong? Have you not got ultra-fast broadband? Well, I thought I did. <laughs> um, hey, we, we, we should, be with you, um, should be with you in a couple of minutes. Um, right. Pretty straightforward. I'll, I'll ask you about this uh, select committee and that sort of stuff. Did you see David Clark this morning? Uh, look, uh, I heard it. Yeah, okay. no, don't even... All good. Nice. Be with you in a moment. Cheers. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I wish to make a ministerial statement informing the House of a state of national emergency. And today on the big questions in this House and in New Zealand, we agree. There's no national or Labour or Green or Act or New Zealand first, just New Zealanders. National leader Simon Bridges on the final sitting day at Parliament this week. The House is not expected to sit while New Zealand is under alert level four. All MPs are expected to stay at home if possible. Some select committees will continue via video conferencing, of course, and an epidemic response committee has been set up to scrutinise the government's response to COVID-19. National leader Simon Bridges is the chair and he joins us this morning from his home in Tauranga. Tēnā koe. Good morning. I should just point out the connection isn't 100%. Have you not upgraded to the ultra-fast broadband? Well, you thought we could have had that sorted out, but um, I've, I've, maybe it's because I've come to my garage for a very child-free, quiet place. Yeah, I understand that um, you're probably not the only parent in New Zealand wanting a child-free, quiet space at the moment. You're going to be chairing this cross-party select committee. What will it actually do? Well, I think very simply what it's going to do is ask the questions that New Zealanders want answered. And that's in the spirit of seeking to uh, improve the government's and the nation's response to this. So I'm just very mindful that this is going to be something that I think almost inevitably now is going to affect a generation of generations, both in health terms, both in state and wealth terms. And uh, so we want to come as eyes and ears from the community and ask those those questions and, and think iteratively, I suppose, as I say, 
improve the nation's response. I think we understand you. <laughs> that was. <laughs> it, try not to move as much as you can. The uh, the connection is very okay. poor, poor at the moment. Do you have any immediate areas of concern as it stands? Yeah, I mean, I think we agree, Jack, on the big stuff, right? Which is that um, we should be in lockdown. Uh, the government now is. Um, pumping in already and stands ready to pump in the financial investment that is required to keep businesses going. That, that doesn't mean whilst we come in a spirit of unity, because we are all in this together, that there won't be disagreements. But I think there are two levels. One is on um, very specific aspects of implementation, testing, tracing, the borders, PPE. Why is it that midwives don't seem to have what they uh, need and want, etc.? And then I think there are issues where actually it's not disagreement, but it's things we are hearing that we can ask questions on. Why, why is it that truck drivers uh, don't have uh, public toilet facilities uh, available to them? And can we do something about that? Uh, we're getting a lot of concerns from young mums, uh, pregnant mums, worried that their partners won't be, be with them uh, at the hospital. So those are the sort of areas we're going to explore in the first place. Is the role of the opposition today different to two weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think that's simply because we are in a national crisis. Um, others have said uh, it's like wartime pudding. And in those sort of circumstances, we come together uh, in unity. As I say, it doesn't mean there will always be disagreement, but it does mean we come at this incredibly constructively trying to help uh, the, the war effort, if you like. It's interesting. You, you were striking a very different tone to the tone you struck a couple of weeks ago in Parliament. And I'm thinking of that response to the government's initial economic rescue sure. package. Have you reflected on that speech you made in the House? And with the benefit of hindsight, do you think perhaps you struck the wrong tone? I think if you think about that speech, yeah, it was a strong speech. But actually a lot changed in the week following. I was fundamentally asking for two things. One of them was the job support to be lifted and the cap lifted. That then happened. I was also making the point that I didn't think the government's priorities in terms of entrenching uh, benefit increases and the like meant that the funding was going where it should. And we've now seen the funded lifted, lifted very significantly. We then, of course, had lockdown announced, I think, a few days after so I suppose what I'm saying to you, Jack, and I, I feel the things I was trenchantly calling for have been responded to, I also think a lot has changed in a week's time. Thank you very much for your time. We're going to leave it there. The connection is, is really poor, and as good as the bookshelf looks behind you, I think uh, next time we're going to have to try it closer to the kids. We'll take the screaming kids over the, over the glitchy connection. Sorry about that, Jack. No, all good. Thank you very much. That is National Leader... Simon Bridges. After the break on Q&A, the industry that's taking one of the biggest hits from COVID-19, it's tourism. How will this big export earner recover? And what will survive, what won't? Kia ora e welcome back to Q&A. I can assure you we will have no more connection issues for the rest of this morning's programme. Many industries are taking a massive hit from COVID-19, but New Zealand's tourism industry may be the single most affected. That being said, moments of crisis also provide opportunity. So is this a chance for the industry to reshape itself for a more resilient future? A little earlier this morning, I spoke to the CEO of Tourism Holdings Limited, Grant Webster, and asked him what impact this is having across the industry. Uh, look, it doesn't get any worse, Jack. Uh, you know, basically, international revenues obviously stopped. Domestic revenues obviously stopped during the lockdown. So, uh, yeah, this is as bad as it gets. Is there any way at this stage to quantify the cost to the New Zealand industry? Uh, well, no, not exactly. But if you look at the fact that it's about a $40 billion industry, um, so if, you, if you we're, we're at least probably $10 billion impact at the moment, I would say, and that's only going to grow. So, yeah, you, you take $10 billion, you could double it. It could be a $20 billion impact. How many jobs are going to be lost? 
Well, who knows? And it's, it's so difficult to put a number on it. If you look back at the GFC, there was about 20,000 jobs lost. Uh, if, you, if you look at sort of the numbers around then, I'd say we're, we're over 100,000. And, you know, that's sort of 25% of the, the employment base and tourism. So it could be more than that. It could be 100, it could be 200. What about the impact on your company? THL operates several campervan companies. Uh, you have tourism businesses at Waitomo. What's the impact on tourism holdings? Uh, yeah, well, we're fortunate that we've got a strong balance sheet. So we really see that priority number one for any tourism business is to survive. And we're very confident that we will. But the reality is that it's a massive impact on people. Uh, and that's what sort of really impacts us. So um, there's a lot of people that we've got to work through what their future is for a period of time at least. And our goal really is to fight as hard as we can to make sure that we recover as quickly as we can so we can re-employ those people. That's the focus. So, yeah, look, we're in the US. That's pretty well shut down. Australia, mm. not quite that close. Um, and New Zealand, the same. How many jobs are you likely to lose in New Zealand? We haven't got to that final point yet. And to be fair to our team, they're the ones who should find out first, not mm. me sort of talking about it in the media. So, But it is, unfortunately, it's, it's going to be really impactful. Um, so we're doing what we can. We're doing what we can to get essential services revenue, working with uh, the, the government and other um, you know, essential services, see what we can provide for them. And if we can get more and more of that, then we'll keep as many jobs as we can. And as I said, hopefully we get to re-employ them as soon as possible. What is the government's rescue package? What impact is the government's rescue package uh, having on your business? Yeah, so look, it helps because uh, clearly, especially that move last week to not just include SMEs, but to include large businesses, that makes a big difference, gives us some confidence to use a concept in the UK where they call it, you know, where they furlough people. So really looking at how you can keep people reasonably employed or to the side, but with that chance of bringing them back in again. Just explain uh, to us how that works. Yeah, look, so the furlough concept is basically that um, the government, uh, this is based in the UK, that the government provides businesses with a baseline amount of money to employ, uh, to provide people. You call it, the, say, the 585 mm. here in New Zealand. And then they can just receive that from the government through the company, retain their service, use some of their annual leave to top up if they need to, and that goes for a period of time. And then you can see where you're at and hopefully re-employ people at that point. But who knows? This is um, certainly unprecedented. How many tourists are using your vehicles for self-isolation now? Yeah, well, I think anyone who's stuck here is essentially self-isolated now. So um, it's about uh, 20 or 30% of our vehicles are still being used right at the moment. So in New Zealand, we've got about 650 people still in, in motorhomes. Um, in Australia, about the same. Uh, and then on top of that, we've got a few that are being used for essential services, but um, not all that many at this point in time. Are those motorhomes being used by international visitors or are those domestic users? Yeah, we've still, we still believe the majority of that sort of 600 are, are still internationals uh, holding up in, in holiday parks and so forth around the country because they haven't been able to get home. Let's talk about the recovery. Once a, a recovery can take place, how might that look? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different paths. You know, I think one of the risks that we face at the moment, there are going to be, the hard reality is there are going to be businesses that fall over, right? And, I, and there's going to be potentially some iconic businesses that fall over. The risk is that we see people coming in and buying assets really cheap off um, whatever process mm. that happens there. And then who knows what that path looks like. The other path that I think that we can look at is how we come together as an industry, how we link to actually say, come together, maybe we link in with the government in some way, maybe we use public listed vehicles, take the concepts of tikanga Māori, take the concepts of sustainability and create a different industry. You know, this is the time that whether we like it or not, this is a reset point. Whether we like it or not, the way that the world has been in the past is not going to be the way that we are moving forward. So the tourism industry is resilient, is really passionate people, and I think now's the time for us to come together as a whole industry to create that new picture. Um, so the opportunity's there. Just, just tell us a bit more about that. What, what might a new industry look like then if this is a reset point? Yeah, look, I think it's, it's one that's going to be, uh, can be even more sustainability-focused 
It's going to be one that is going to be linked to the community more. It's clearly going to come off a new base in terms of visitor numbers. So maybe it's an opportunity to reset the value equation there as well. And maybe it's an opportunity to regionalise to an even greater degree. Those spots where we've had real hotspots, maybe we can change that. When you say resetting uh, the, the value average of, of tourists, do you mean fewer freedom campers, for example? No, it's no. I think it's we're motorhomes, so we believe that, that those customers actually do add some real value. They but the, stay but the low end. The low, yeah, at, at the at the lower end. I know I know the majority of your vehicles are at the higher end, but at, at the lower yeah. end and the porta potty in a van, that end. Yeah. So look, m maybe it's that, but maybe it's far more actually about there will be less competition. Maybe you take somewhere like Milford Sound, right? Milford Sound is absolutely iconic. And the value that is created there is nowhere near what it should be. You know, what people pay for that incredible world experience is just too cheap. And it's a competitive environment. Maybe that changes. Maybe there's uh, more operators need to come together. Maybe there needs to be less capacity mm. uh, and a, a greater value equation from that perspective. So you, know, Tonga you, you expect the lower, the lower end, say, to fall out somewhat? Yeah, potentially. There, there are going to be some people who don't have the strong enough balance sheet that maybe haven't been focused enough on uh, the longer-term future. Maybe they fall out. Maybe this becomes a stronger industry in that regard. And when you say some iconic businesses are vulnerable, what sorts of businesses are those? Oh, look, I think um, any, any of them throughout the country, right, that if they haven't got the right kind of balance sheet... And you've got to remember... That's even not, not people's fault in a lot of ways. This is zero revenue environment. You know, we're, we're all in a cash burn at the moment. We're all at the mercy of our funders to some degree. When could we allow international visitors back into New Zealand, do you hope? Have you heard anything from the government? No, I haven't heard anything on that. But I think what's going to happen is we're going to have to focus domestically first. So Tourism New Zealand actually being provided the mandate to market domestically, which it hasn't had previously, that's really important. And then I think it's going to be either an opportunity to really focus on Trans-Tasman next and really try and see Australia and New Zealand as, as borderless in that environment. However, it may be that it's actually that the borderless environment is with those countries who have the least uh, COVID virus impact. So maybe it is China and New Zealand first. Maybe it's opening that border first. Uh, but that's it's clearly going to be COVID-related in terms of what's next. Will the industry ever get back to the size it was before COVID-19? Yes. Definitively, yes. How long will it take? Oh, see, that's that's uh, look. It's like a bad movie at the moment, right? We're we're, we're this this is uh, definitely won the short film festival around the world. I guess the question is, it going to be a Peter Jackson style trilogy? I don't know, but the reality is, I think calendar year twenty twenty is just going to be tough. Twenty twenty one, I think we're still going to be focused on cash, uh, and then twenty twenty two is where I think we really have our heads back up and, and focused on the future. So I think it's it's eighteen months to be back where we were. But I think in 2021, we'll be focused on getting profitable again as an industry. That is Grant Webster from Tourism Holdings Limited. After the break on Q&A. But our decision will be based on hard facts and data as to the opening. I'm also hopeful to have Americans working again by that Easter, that beautiful Easter day. Mm, the president wants to be back in business in a couple of weeks. But is that in any way realistic? Hawke Mayanor, welcome back. The United States is now the epicentre of the global COVID-19 outbreak. It has recorded more cases than China and the number of those killed in the US is fast approaching 2,000 people. New York City has been at the centre of the US crisis and President Donald Trump says he's considering quarantining the state as well as New Jersey and parts of Connecticut. Martin Pengali is the weekend editor for The Guardian UK based in New York. A short time ago, I asked him to give us some perspective on the crisis in America. Uh, it's very bad. It's very, very bad indeed. Uh, hospital system overwhelmed or will soon be overwhelmed. Um, US Navy medical ships, one's in Los Angeles, one's just setting off for New York now. Uh, deadlock between state governments and federal government about governments, about resources, about ventilators, about 
the whole response. It's it's bad, and most predictions are that the real badness is coming in five, six, seven days' time. How did it get to this state? It got to this stage because uh, of a number of factors, including the, the macro factor of the US having no public health system to really think of. I mean, there is access to public health, but no, mm. no working system. Um, the obviously the Trump administration is arguing that it was prepared and it, I, it it responded very well to all the warnings. Most critics, most journalists are saying it didn't. Um, Trump disregarded the uh, warnings from China, the things that were coming from China, took a couple of steps, one of which he, he talks about regularly about shutting down China, travel from China, which he didn't. He put restrictions on, on travel from China and funneled Chinese travelers to certain airports, which most people would agree was a wise method, uh, move, but that's pretty much all he did in uh, as January went into February and into March. And now we're in this situation where it's gathering pace. New York, where I am, is a, a, a alarming hotspot. The worst is coming, and the political fighting is still going on. Can you just describe to us what it's like in New York at the moment? I can. I'm, I'm currently sitting, bizarrely enough, uh, what you see around me, this is not my home. This is a a empty flat in my co-op, my vast Washington Heights co-op, which me and my wife were looking after for friends who moved, sold it and moved back to England, but they haven't completed the sale. The closing couldn't happen, and it's here empty. So the very nice couple next door who read The Guardian are lending me their wireless, and I'm sitting up here in splendid isolation editing The Guardian. Um, similar things, similar scenes all around the city, but with people who have nothing like as fortunate as me being shut in with their families, working at home if they can, obviously not working at home if they can't. I think there's a study out saying that uh, maybe one in four Americans can't do their jobs at home. The economy is at a standstill. The huge stimulus bill passed the other day, but it won't be felt yet. Three million un mm. um, unemployed, uh, three, well, the large unemployment figure was this week. And the city is a ghost town. Nobody's out. I mean, Cuomo, in his in his press this morning, did say that they're considering an order on the parks because you're allowed out to exercise, people are going out to exercise, but some people take that uh, further than others. So where there are families like mine with kids on scooters trying to keep social distancing going, there are also packed exercise uh, areas and packed mm. basketball courts. So there could be more strict orders coming. Trump has sown confusion today by saying he's considering an order to quarantine New York. No one knows what that means. Andrew Cuomo hadn't even heard of it, he said, at his Albany press conference. Um, it's a very confused, very bleak situation. You mentioned the problem with resources. I've spoken to people working in Manhattan hospitals who've been told they're allowed one face mask per week at the moment. And clearly there is a disconnect between the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, and the White House. Is that adding mm -hmm. to the problems? It is. I mean, I think that's, a, that's probably a perennial American problem. I think you'd see that in, in almost anything. The federal government and the state governments are always rubbing up against each other. They're kind of supposed to by design of the constitutional system. Um, it's obviously worse with a Trump administration in there, which is aggressively uh, small government-minded, you'd say, with mm. cutting back federal government is supposed to do and is led by Donald Trump with everything we know about Donald Trump. Cuomo's having a very good crisis. If anyone can have a good crisis, he's providing leadership uh, and very, very clear briefings every day. Um, I think just <laughs> randomly, there's, a, there's a, a phrase that FDR is supposed to have said about Somoza. He's supposed to have said he's our son of a, a bee. But, sorry, he's a son of a bee, but he's our son of a bee, if I don't say the, the actual word. I think that's how New Yorkers think about Cuomo. Mm. Some of the time. He's mm. a tough guy. He's a really tough governor, and he's coming into his own here. That said, coming into his own means trying to achieve the impossible, which is to shore up this hospital system that's facing collapse and get things out of the federal government like ventilators. Well, speaking of trying to achieve the impossible, Donald Trump said just a couple of days ago he wants America rearing to go by Easter and that on Easter Sunday he wants to see churches packed around the country. Is that possible? Is it at all likely? Um... I mean, it's possible in Republican states. There is a divide coming through where Democratic states are taking quarantining very seriously and Republican states aren't. That's partly to do with the big government message, the fear of big government and so on. Mm. It's, not, it's looking less possible he'll try it because he's dropped the Easter messaging the past couple of days because the reaction was so strong and his own uh, public health experts, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's very 
nationally popular, too popular for Trump to get rid of if he wanted to. I don't know if he does, but Fauci has contradicted him a few times, and he contradicted him on that, basically said gently that would be a very bad idea. Trump still says he wants to get the economy open. He's, he's still talking about doing low-risk and high-risk areas, whatever that means. Um, but it seems wildly unrealistic. Un it also seems, if you were conspiracy-minded or political-minded, that he might be he might be stronger on uh, hotspots like New York, Washington, and Michigan, which happen to be governed by Democrats. He doesn't like. Um, it's resolutely political with Trump. His need to open the economy is political. He needs to reopen it in election year. He'll be trying, but I don't think the Easter thing will happen. How has this affected the Democratic primaries? All the primaries are on the slate of being delayed. Um, Cuomo announced today he's putting the New York primary back to um, June, I think. Uh, Biden, who is the presumptive nominee, is at home in Delaware, where he should be. He's struggling to influence the conversation too much with virtual addresses, virtual town halls. It's not something he's naturally good at. There, there are um, wild-ish there is wildish talk on, in the Democratic Party about Cuomo as a, a white knight uh, to come in and take it over. I mean, there's a million reasons that won't happen. There's also a million reasons that over the past three years that have been shown with Donald Trump that it might. I mean, God knows anything can happen these days. But uh, Bernie Sanders has not quit. He's mm. still there. He's still saying he's running. He's still saying he wants to shake the battle for ideas. Um, fine. There is no primary at the moment. There is no battle for ideas at the moment. So Bernie is kind of up in Vermont doing not quitting, but not particularly relevant. Mm. It's all in stasis, really. Mm. Is there any possibility, depending on how this goes in the next couple of weeks, that Donald Trump could try and delay November's election? It would be a huge move. I think most people are predicting, Cuomo was saying today, that looking at China and Italy, um, you're looking at a sort of 12 to 16 week journey to the peak of the American outbreak and when things are, are fixed. So you're looking at May, June. The election's mm -hmm. November. It's a long way away. I think it would, at the moment, it doesn't seem likely. I mean, you don't know what would go on, and you certainly don't know what Donald Trump would try, because he's liable to try anything. It's, 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 it doesn't seem possible, but it's certainly feasible, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Martin, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, and stay safe. Thank you. You too. That is Martin Pengelly, the weekend editor for The Guardian in the US, speaking from New York City. I think it's one of those times that all of us feel very grateful to be in Aotearoa. Health officials expect the numbers of those infected and uh, killed by COVID-19 in the US to significantly increase in the coming days. Of course, we are expected to have dozens of more confirmed cases in New Zealand as well. The Ministry of Health is going to update us at 1 o'clock today and then Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern will have an update at 3 o'clock this afternoon. We will broadcast both of those updates live for you on TVNZ1. So at 1 o'clock and then at 3 o'clock this afternoon. We've just got time for a bit of feedback before we leave you this morning. Frank says, Sean Hendy's point is simple. Ongoing transmission depends on us. Not on the government, not on foreigners, not even on the virus. It's us. And the sooner people get their heads around this, the better outcome we will have. Maxine says, it's good that the Minister of Health is in a bubble with his family and that the government is decentralising. And Jordan Carter, who just happens to be the head of Internet New Zealand, says, so Simon Bridges needs ultra-fast broadband as fast as possible. I think we can all agree on that. That's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And nā mihi kia koutou i ngā Thanks for your contributions. I hope you're coping OK with everything. And just remember, routine and a sensible bit of daily exercise, the elements on your face go a hell of a long way to fighting cabin fever. The One News team will keep you updated with the very latest on coronavirus throughout the day, and we'll see you next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Hey, corner.